0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivelovich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Standing in Two Worlds. I'm Avram Kivelovich. I'm here with Dr. Sam Juni in Yerushalayim, Irak Dr. Juni, um, even in Eretz Yisroh, I'm sure you are feeling the sense of the Yom Tov Pesach, the holiday of Passover uh, that is upon us. I think throughout the, the Judeo-Christian world, if such a term still is true anymore, um, there is a sense that uh, the holiday is coming, uh, although Christmas in many ways uh, it seems to be the uh, holiday which most identifies Christians. We know from a religious perspective, Easter really speaks of uh, of the essence of the Christian religion, which is the idea of the eternality of the soul, the idea that through Jesus one finds eternal salvation from the fact that death did not really, uh, really wreak upon him uh, his real end, but that really that Jesus's resurrection, which occurs on Easter, is, an, is is part of the great motif of salvation and eternal life finding in God's love and compassion. I'm not sure if our Christian friends would agree with the synopsis I just gave. But my point, though, is, is that Easter is a very solemn time, and we know it's tethered to our calendar because we know Jesus' – the Last Supper was the Seder, and Jesus arose on the third day, and, uh, and that way forever uh, emphasized uh, the tenets of the eternal soul and the compassion and love of, of, of God. The point I'm trying to make is, is that for Christians, midnight mass on Easter is, is a very important moment. It's very solemn. People come there um, and, and they hear inspiration. For us, however, uh, <laughs> we are, who are the progenitors of the whole uh, of, of Christianity in some way, it isn't about going to a mass. It isn't going to some solemn event. Allah, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Kol Nidre experience, but it's actually what occurs in our homes, what occurs in Mishpacha, Mishpacha, as it says in the, says in the Megillah. But we do that for us at the night of the Seder, where families have come together. And that has, of course, been the way since the very first Seder, so to speak, as the Jews left Egypt or Mitzrayim, as, as it's really more appropriate to say. And that family experience. Um, although there is a text, as everyone knows, the, the Haggadah Shal Pesach that you get from Maxwell House, from all, all decent grocery stores in the United States, will give it to you for free. And so many people have that book. But it's more than just reading from the text. It's about family coming from all over, pre-COVID especially, the ideas of, of really dozens and dozens of uh, family members coming for this moment Uh, A family experience. Yes, reading from a a text, but really interacting, uh, bonding. uh, And in some ways, most people will tell you, I think, I don't know, that 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 is really almost a seminal moment of our calendar. It's the moment that, uh, and seminal, I think, is a good term here because from a mystical perspective, it's supposed to be our birthday. It's supposed to be the time that we actually forge ourselves as a people historically. And that is when we Come together with family discussion, reading a specific story. But I think what happens, Doctor J, and uh, you know, I'm Woody Allen. Uh, uh, I think uh, immortalized this in his a film that you might have seen called Crimes and Misdemeanors, where, where uh, they go back to a Seder event. Um, all different stripes of family come together, and the family drama. The family motif is really set uh, at the night of the Seder. There is a, a description of what you are, the story of the Jews leaving Egypt to the Jews and what they're about, but there's also what this family is about. And, I, you know, I, I think that um, this event is, I, it might not be unique to us, but I know both of us have shared in it. And I'd like to get your perspective about the positivity of having this this event where This is the family legacy. This is what you need to know. And I'm gonna add one little point here, and I know that you can talk about this at length. There has become a tradition, especially in the post Holocaust era, for my father and mother to not do this, but many um, survivors and people who have escaped death and who have been in something like a, a servitude of concentration camps and other things, of ghettos, concentration camps, life on the run, describe to their children on the night of the Seder some of the highlights and elements of what their escape and to actually make not, this not only some historical um, fiction in some people's mind, but it turns into something real. And this is where children can hear about how Babi and Zaidi escaped and how they were able to survive and how they were able to, uh, to get through the years of terror and how they were liberated perhaps and many have fused that story with the Seder story and it, it is definitely something i think that needs to be remarked up from a sociological perspective but i want to get your input dr juni from a psychological perspective if you see all of this to what i've just described here for the last couple of minutes as something positive healthy and, and and describe it if you will from in terms of the tellers and in terms of the listeners. In terms of the people who are giving it over, and let's say the the children in some way who are hearing about it. Okay, that's your Seder plate. I've put all the pieces there for you. Please, Tatech, I will fragen Ich I dir jetzt, I bet Give me a jetzt, and from here after kashes. Well, well. <laughs>
1: Let me just say, I often say this to people who are um, bright um, challengers that your questions sometimes are much better than the, any answer I'll give you. So okay. We'll take advisement. Uh,
0: okay.
1: All right, let, let me roll with this a little. So, um, let me start first with, with the idea of identity. Um, when you identify with something larger than yourself. Let's talk about a group identity, or a cultural identity, uh, or even a family identity. Um, It's something artificial, right? Because you feel yourself, you yourself are a psychological unit. You and other people are not really a unit. It's, um, shall we say, a unit of convention, or a unit of uh, convenience, or something that's being made up for political, or whatever reasons. Uh, family is a political unit, of course. It's uh, originally based on um, economics, like getting together, people are efficient. It's almost like a confederation of individuals who get together. So the way, um, uh, um, and, and again, I am not implying that this is artificial in the sense that it's not um, pre-programmed. You know, the idea about the Lotova, Odom, Lovado probably defines a, a, the psychological nature of people, but it's, it's not a physically... Uh, intuitive phenomenon that people group together. So it's it's psychological, sociological, whatever you want to call it. So there are some uh, basic ingredients to a group identity. And if I have to break them down, I would say it's based on beliefs, it's based on rituals of behavior, and it's based on narratives. In other words, um, people stay together because they are distinct. shonos, they they, they they do things differently. They think differently. Some people will say they look differently. I'm not about to do that. I would say that's part of rituals where you kind of dress up or you identify, you put on certain kinds of clothing, certain kinds of uniforms. So let's leave the beliefs alone and then stick to narratives. In other words, every group has a group narrative, perhaps related to beliefs some, and some of it's related to r- rituals, like we do this. This is what we do every year when the when when the uh, at solstice. This is what we do it every year at springtime or at falltime. time. Um, but um, part of what we do is also a narrative. A narrative is a way of it's words. You say things. You sing some things if you're part of certain religions, especially. Uh, well, some religions have singing, um, um, chanting as part of rituals but it also involves a certain perspective of things. <clears throat> and the perspective is a way of conceptualizing events that are more or less objective, and we make a certain sense of it. Um, all right, so I, I just wanted to start with that principle. So let us Oh, let me just say something. You mentioned Maxwell House. Maxwell House stopped giving out her goddess. okay? They last gave it out, I think, when my grandmother <laughs> OK, or maybe as my grandmother's bat, bat mitzvah, they gave it out. It's not, so if, if you're not dated to that, you have
0: no, to have. I, I, I'm going to have to. I'm going to push back on that. I've gotten the Maxwell's. I got at least a couple of years ago. They were still giving them out. <laughs> oh, boy. Yes. OK, oh, boy. You, there is no Waldbaums anymore like you used to remember. But the, but in, in, in many, many uh, supermarkets, uh, I think they ask you to please buy one of their coffees together in order to take the to take. Oh, it. Boy. But, oh, but, okay. but they're still out there.
1: Sure. It's well. Okay. Sorry. All right. Okay. So. Okay. So let's talk about this. So, uh, what I would like to say is that there are implicit, not just explicit, but implicit beliefs, rituals, and narratives that make up the fiber of a family. And the difference between families is that some, for some of them, it's very explicit like it is for cults or for groups they say okay this is precisely what we do on this holiday this is precisely what we do on this particular day and for some of them it's implicit and the implicit um, uh, rituals or the implicit narratives are not necessarily something that people are very conscious of it's just uh, you basically find out about it when children pointed out to you saying, oh yeah, that's what you always say, or that's what you always do, or that's the way we always deal with things. So it's almost like a, a subtext, which we're not aware of, but what I'm, I'm proposing is that um, sociologically, that's what keeps the unit together. If you have a family unit that's totally non-distinct distinct in its beliefs, its rituals, or its narratives from your neighbors or anybody else, that family is no longer a family. You might as well be in a kibbutz. Because that's what keeps together, it has characteristics that make it unique. So, um, I think it's sometimes instructive to see the kinds of stuff people do, and now especially I'm at the stage where I go to Kit Seder in general. I didn't go last year, but I will this year, uh, thank God, um, because COVID has, has loosened its grip here in Israel. But um, it's kind of remarkable saying, oh, yeah, this is what we always did. This is what we always said. And sometimes saying, okay, this is where you and mom always had a fight. You know, it was always at this point or at that point. And it sounds a little bit um, um, disconcerting and takes you back. But you realize what else is the family? The family is just a bunch of uh, um, memories that people have to share and put you together and make you more of an in-group compared to an out-group to a certain extent. So, so, so let me, let, let me just, let me just stop you say, there. I personally have been surprised that my kids sometimes insisting on doing some things, which was a total artifact or just like, wow, oh, where did that come from? But again, that to them is the, the concretization of the family memory and the family identity. You were so, going to say something.
0: Yeah, yeah, that. I'm sorry for stepping on you. But I, I, so I think what part of what I'm hearing from you and maybe the whole thing of what I'm hearing from you is that it might've been drawn up with some idea, other idea in mind about uniformity, that we all, you know, go through a certain text. But really, what it, what happens is there's a very st- strong individualistic streak that every family has. In other words, if if this event of sitting together for the night of the seder um, is really important in, in, in your mind, in terms of forging a family identity that's unique and different. Obviously, my Seder and your Seder are going to be different, right, because the, the, the people that are part of it are different, the memories of, uh, of the idiosyncrasies of what each person is there. So it's really a, a great stage forcing everyone, because they want to do the right thing religiously, to really take part in, in an event that otherwise they probably wouldn't make time for, but forges and, and makes concrete what our family is in a way about. Um, and, and therefore it's, it's really like we say, when I, I, I the, the, what, like the, the schmooze that I said, starting off our talk, it really is something very distinct from our Christian brothers, right? I mean, they might have, maybe they have Thanksgiving or some other time to do that, but we have actually, you know, entrenched in our religion, a time for family solidarity and family identity, which you think is a very positive thing, correct? You think it's very positive. yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I just want to make it clear, I don't think that this is intentional in terms of the way our culture or or, or, or religious minhagim um, or rituals evolved, but that's definitely the function it serves from a family psychological perspective, without that there would be no family identity, and I'm sure you talk about a Christian, I don't know that so well, but I can tell you in terms of Muslim rituals or whatever, there are times of year, and there are ways of doing things that, again, are intended, I shouldn't say intended, I, I have the sociological function of defining subgroups, clans, uh, uh, religious nationalities even, based on the kinds of stuff that they do, and the way they put their spin on reality. And the main function, I would say function, uh, the main benefit for it is that you have a cohesive family identification which people need people need something more than saying I'm an individual and after that as soon as that stops I'm the same as everybody else okay?
0: I, 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 I'm gonna just push back a minute there and say for a minute and say I think that was might I think that was part of God's plan you know from my religious perspective I think that God understood that by setting up a system that is family based as opposed to You know, we all gather at the temple, like on Yom Kippur, as it was in the Bible and the Torah. Uh, The idea that this was a, you know, (laughs) the sacrificial uh, lamb was, you know, a huge thing for everybody to take part and to eat together. Um, Eating, and you've done a lot of studies, of course, about how people bond and and, and assert themselves during that physical experience of eating. It it, it is really, I think, part of God's plan to really um, inventively tie discussion and eating together, right? It it isn't isn't so – it's just about, okay, let's talk first and then eat. We actually talk to set up the eat. The eat is part of the talk. It's almost a a perfect uh, way to sort of like to throw everything – like not only do you have the sensory perceptions – of speech and, and, and announcements, but you also have the spilling of the gravy and the pasty, the, uh, pasty gribelach, whatever it is, all of that really coalesces in a child's mind uh, in ways that a, a speech or an event or a dance doesn't do. <laughs> so what,
1: what it sounds like you're really talking about is a, a, a multiple, multi-sensational, kind of way of coming up with a ritual. You throw in everything else that's important. You throw in, like, a, let's say, three minutes of fighting. You throw in <laughs> eating. You throw in, uh, you know, a color, spelling, sounds, maybe, singing. Yeah, sure. Wow. But again, I don't know God, what what God is intending to do. Okay, here, but I well... Do know t- that it, I, I'll leave that to you, but I just do know yeah. that the function of coalescing into a... Um, narrative, which includes ritual, includes eating, if you wish, includes emotionality, that all serves to come up with an identity that would not otherwise be there for the Uh,
0: family. And I'm going to actually take it one step further. You know, there are uh, a number, and I've heard this from people who talk about family get-togethers more than once a year. I think there's something healthy, you tell me if I'm wrong, about limiting it to like a -a once-a-year time uh, you know, to do it more than once a year, of you know everybody coming together, it, it, it's an imposition. But it also allows the fact that it goes from year to year, allows a certain perspective. Oh, look how Yankel has grown in the last year. Oh, remember last year he could he couldn't say the fourth kasha. Oh, now look what's happening. So it, it really the distance. It, it's it's it, it's it's a it's not ten years. It's not like twenty years since we've been together it's it, it's enough of a time just like many of us today it's almost coming out of the yazoo. look where we are a year ago into covid a year ago into covid and it, it's a really nice perch to be able to remember last year and to and to rethink about the changes when you see people i, I, it's, I, I think it's a healthy distance what do you what do you say dr j is would it's you agree awesome. Sounds great. It sounds great. (laughs) I already know you. I know you what that means. Sounds great. I know that's That's what I'm saying. That's code for Narschkeits. (laughs) No, no,
1: no, no. no. Listen to me. There's no question that that is a function that's used as a way of marking time. I just, I'm saying sounds great because I don't want to step on your toes as the in-house theologian. Did God mean that? I leave that to you and God. You know, I don't know, but sure, is it used? But there's no question. Last year, this year, and what markers are there? If you're talking about markers in terms of your own personal spiritual development, you might say the 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 high holidays are that. But if you're talking in terms of family, most often it is the uh, the Pesach get together.
0: There's no question, right? But, but but I guess what I'm trying to get you to admit to me is that it's better less is more. the, the idea of not overdoing it, not becoming OCD about what the family is changing, but actually every year to take stock, it's, 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 it's far enough from last year. And it's, it's, it's a healthier way as opposed to obsessing over every month, how things are changed. Um, so it, it really is a, a wonderful balance in that way. Um, sure. And, sure. You know, and I think also for, for children. I'm sorry, I just want to qualify. It's, if you're talking
1: in terms of watching the progress as things are going it's a wonderful balance. It can also be a disturbing balance when you notice year after year that your kids perhaps um, are totally off somewhere else. They have now that there's a guy there like Mitch is uh, at the Seder, but he's constantly looking you know, at the cell phone or interested, or excuse me, I have to keep going to the bathroom or constantly picking a fight with his cousin or that the kids really don't need you anymore and that you're becoming kind of a... Um, uh, some kind of relic sitting at the end of the table and saying, you know, don't bother grandma, she's a little bit anxious. And uh, so it allows you to mark very positive um, aspects of the family transition and also negative aspects, things you might consider negative. I don't, and who knows? I don't know if that's intended by any kind of uh, a superpower there to to do it but that's what but that's what periodic rituals are about you mark time and say okay it's, you can't mark time in terms of yesterday because your skirt does not getting tighter from day to day but from <laughs> year to year it does and your face sags from year to year and your ability to stand your sister-in-law you know mounts or sags from year to year it's it's a um it's a personal calendar until you finally you know Give up the count.
0: So so there's definitely benefits, I believe, for the adults, especially, especially people in our vintage in terms of approaching some great milestone. Let's talk about the children and especially what they're going to be hearing. Um, on one hand, it, it, you're right, it, it might be healthy. Uh, for a child who hasn't seen their cousin or whatever it is for a year and interact and say, oh, look how you've changed. Look how, oh, you look different. And to sort of like, in a way, be happy or uh, come to terms with physical body changes and things that are happening as as, as young uh, children are developing. But I, I want to talk about the idea of listening. We know we have this idea. I started uh, your schmooze with uh, invoking the the rich the typical question the way the question is asked from the elder statesman of the seder tata is there's do you see that as a negative that they, that there's an idea of the kids or our children are meant to hear in other words you need to hear our story and we want you to, to to listen to the story of the jewish people the way they what happened how they were put into mitzrayim how they came out but also to hear our take on it so the children they, they have school is enough but that they are, at least in some way, in a passive sense, that they are being macabre, as we say in Hebrew. They are, being, they are hearing uh, from others. And I want you also to talk about something which I know is very close to your heart, when a parent will introduce into the stories that the children must hear their own personal narrative, especially in the post-Holocaust uh, age.
1: So I can relate to the last point you, you, you mentioned more, than to the historical or religious points that you mentioned. Um, So let me do that. Instead of, um, you know, dancing around things that I don't know too much about, let me dance on on something that I know well about. Uh, Let me just talk about um, um, implicit um, narratives that exist within families. And that is that... um, there are elephants in the room all the time. There are things we talk about and there are things we don't talk about, even though we don't necessarily, let's talk in a family unit, we don't necessarily say rules. You never talk about uh, 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 grandpa's uh, uh, indiscretions, right? You never talk about the fact that Uncle Joe has been in prison, you know, for 30 years now for something he did and nobody wants to mention it. You don't talk about it, right? And then there are certain things that happened that... Perhaps you haven't talked about yet or you think other people didn't notice or the kids didn't notice. Other people notice everything. Kids notice everything. Everybody knows everything. The question is knowing and coming up with a narrative. it. So there are family narratives. Let me talk about the Holocaust specifically for those families who still have a parent around there. and Because I feel that, um, in fact, the second generation... Um, um, survivors, so to speak, have inherited a legacy and a narrative which is pretty painful on their own. So let's just talk about the Holocaust. There is a family narrative around the Holocaust, whether you like it or not. And you can deal with it in two ways. You can deal with it by addressing it and coming up with a narrative, at least, that's out of mouth pools and eared out and talked about that people can then relate to in their own way or say, yeah, and this bothers me or this I object to or this doesn't sit well with me or I don't see how you can possibly say that and pretend to be X or Y. That's A. And secondly, about an explicit narrative. You say this. I don't think it's so. I don't think it's true. Like, for instance, many family narratives are bound up inextricably with misfacts or distortions, things that are just not there. I mean, I uh, remember meeting somebody who was actually a kapo, which is somebody who was a Jewish enforcer in concentration camp and did atrocities, and their family had a very nice narrative of who that was and what he was like. And that's fine in terms of family... family. Um, connectedness and family uh, um, inertia, it's very important for them to have that. So in a sense, I'm saying narrative these days is a word, a sociological word in PC terms, which means that we construct narratives based on some kind of other need rather than narratives being an accurate reflection of truth. If there was truth, then there is no, there's only one narrative. But in eras of relativity and eras of uh, writing your own um a a life thread. There are many narratives. So, and that's, and it's these alternate narratives that allow us to have family identity. Again, you know, as Freud would say, if everybody was exactly the same and thought the same and felt the same and looked the same, then everybody is the same. There's not no identity at all. The only thing that makes identity are differences. And what great thing to pick on when you have like history or memories, you make up your own kind of history or your own memories as a way of suiting it. So that being said, outside of the ritualistic um, reasons why people get together, the the, the, the religious ritualistic people, why people get together on Pesach, I think it's a great time to build, cement family narratives, and also bring these narratives out from the implicit to the explicit. Because when they are implicit, inevitably... There will be some features in there that'll be surprising to the supposed gatekeepers of the narrative, saying, Wow, that's the way you look at it or whatever. So I, I like I I I kick myself always for not having had the the um the guts really to um talk through with my parents some aspects of their own perception of the narrative, which they were willing to share. Some things they would not have been willing to share. Some I explicitly hit my head against the wall many times. And I would say the most genuine reflections of my parents are the interviews that my kids did on cassette recorders because they had the requirements. And sometimes I find it funny that my grandkids now you know, color me very often saying, okay, I have this requirement. I need you to talk about your relationship with Safta, etc. what you did or what you didn't. I say, this is ridiculous. It's not ridiculous at all because I am given the opportunity here to present my spin. I mean, I think it's a real spin, of course. Everybody thinks right. it's a real spin. My spin on what happened, rather than conco- have them concoct all kinds of notions and ideas of what it was all about, which they probably will end up doing anyway based on their own, requirements of identity, but it is a nice thing doing that. And yes, I think it's very important, let's say, for community, for families that have a, a, a live aspect of Holocaust survival there, for at least people to share, to say, this is how I view it. And others will say, this is not how I view it, or this is how it happened, this is not how it happened. It's nice to have that rather than have them live in la-la land, as far as I'm concerned. But I have some value for truth. Um, most of us May not feel the way they say. Who cares? So you construct what you want to, so long as your Robert is happy. That's what matters. I don't yeah.
0: know. You know, you know. There's an interesting um, uh, debate uh, that erupted. Uh, I would say probably in the late 70s and 80s about what would be the proper as, as we realized that the Holocaust generation was going to, was diminishing and was not going to be with us. Uh, <laughs> obviously. Uh, what would be the day to commemorate? And um, there was uh, a, an argument made from the Aguda and others uh, that Tishabov and it would be the time where uh, we should not only, you know, um, construct these elegies and dirges and poetic ways of crying over the uh, Holocaust, but a time to actually think about uh, and, and, and and read and, perhaps uh, watch films that have to do with the Holocaust. And, and part of it was, from Rav Putner's perspective, to put it in, instead of having a a, a, a national Holocaust day, uh, whether it would be um, in, in, uh, during the you know, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, uh, which, of course, Yom HaShoah, uh, Vahagvura, or somehow connected to Sarbatevis, which is the Yom Kaddish, but to actually put it as part of Jewish suffering, uh, together, in other words, Tisha B'av is a time where it makes sense because, right? Hang on. Uh, I think that from what you're saying, there might be a healthier way to do it. <laughs> in other words, instead of Tisha B'av as a time to to bring the Holocaust out and and to give us something to hold on to, to to think about Jewish pain and suffering, and see it as part of the uh, this whole perspective of life. And, and, and what God has done with us and been involved with us since the destruction of the temple, actually Holocaust experiences coming out on Pesach, I think is a more hopeful way of expressing it because we know that we're supposed to talk about redemption. We're supposed to talk about that we survived, that we actually were extricated from it and we have been brought to a wonderful place. So when you have a, a Holocaust survivor Uh, who can still speak about this and speak about it in a way where he could somehow put it in together with the idea of ga'ula, of redemption. I think what you get is a much more positive, uplifting experience. And instead of children being horrified by what man can do to other men, they can talk about the strength of a people and the greatness of how, even from suffering, you are able to come through it and become even stronger. Go ahead.
1: Okay, so I have a, a bifurcated response here. Um, there are kids who sit at the seder who say essentially Ma, uh, Mazot. What does this have to do with me? Okay, so 2,000 years ago I did that. Give me a break, okay? And ditto for Tischishbu, okay? I know people who are trying to be religious and whatever. they sit there on Tischishbuv and they say, Hmm, that was like that was a bad thing that happened. It's almost like like the Mets losing. You know, it's it's pretty terrible. <laughs> but come on, come, on, come on, let's let's not carry on over here. And I I I've, I think I've said in the past I have seen my dad on Tish above like crying like like a little kid. And I said to myself, this ain't real. There is no way he's crying about that. I know what he's crying about. All right, so he's dressing it up. So so here's the issue. We have two kinds of people. We have people um who are essentially um, live um, um, reservoirs of memory of the culture. They really, for them, it's like horrible. A korban is a horrible thing. Getting out of Mitzrayim is the biggest thrill for them personally, because that's, they live with the Jewish people, so to speak, they're very identified. I think for them, it makes sense, first of all, to have Tisha B'Av as being a day also where you lament the Holocaust, because it's almost like, that Chorban to them is part of a, a legacy that they feel and experience in their very souls as potently as they realize their other, their other Tsarists. And I see in the Gemara, sometimes they have like all kinds of fast days for various events that happened throughout like a, a Babylon. And I say, wow, okay, for them, this was all continuation. chain. There are people, I should say kids, but I also mean adults, that really feel detached about this. So they're only, let's say, a, 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 a fascination or being able to get in touch with the ecstasy of Passover, or shall we say, the, the, the horrific events of the korban of the Chorban Bessamikdash, is to have someone who can expound. I mean, I have somebody like that. My brother's like that. But I, I've gone to people who can do this on a fast day, who bring out issues that really make it come alive. But otherwise, I have to say it's dated, and it's, it's kind of irrelevant. So um, I personally object, and I object from a, I should say, a, a, a position that I should not be so proud of, but that's me. I relate to the Holocaust, unfortunately, much more than I relate to the horrors of Egypt. I'm sorry. Okay? So to say that you're going to go, uh, uh, it's not, a, I'm at the horrors of the khurban. Based on even though they had the temple destroyed and people were dying, yet I can't, I can't relate to that as much as I can't. to this, both in terms of immediacy of my family members, in terms of magnitude, in terms of uh, just the scope of the destruction. I'm sorry. So to me, it's sacrilegious, if I can use that point, to incorporate Holocaust memories and say, yeah, put it on the day that you had something else happen like 2,000 years ago, this terrible calamity. Leave me alone. I'm talking about my family. I'm talking about my parents. I'm talking about my, my, my siblings, and you're going to schlep into me what happened in Beitar. Don't do it. Okay. For some people, like Rabbi Huttner, okay, or people who are true, shall we say, ancient Jews who never left that identity, of course, to them, I would say the korban means so much more, right? I've seen people sometimes they infuriate me saying, oh no. No, this is much worse than the Holocaust because you're destroying people's souls and their religion and their... ah, Come on, it it gets very upsetting. So I would say we have two different... Definitely for Robert and Joan, whatever, who are graduates of day school, all right, who are not like profound yeshiva students somewhere in the mirror on Lakewood, um, dwelling on past um, monumental events in Jewish history, really past, and their history books, rather than the stuff that's relevant to us, is a disservice in terms of their family, cultural, and overall Jewish identity. And to others, of course, I'm sorry, I should mention in terms of the sage, Rabbi Selvedchik was also very fond of saying don't do a Yom HaShoah, make it part of some other... uh I think he actually used to say Tisha and in Shire, yeah. Man, I understand him because he lived that. That was real for him when he described the way um, in his family, especially his father and his grandfather, the way they would uh, do the uh, um, the services on Yom Kippur, it sounded like they were there. They felt they were back in, in Yerushalayim doing whatever it was. So for them, it makes sense. But for me, um, me personally, I consider an insult. I mean, you're schlepping in that. Why don't you take something and talk talk about the Holocaust, darn it. Don't talk about it, how it's also part of what happened in Mitzrayim and how, oh boy, like Arami, like a Lavan is worse than Paro. <laughs> okay. Come on. No, I think Hitler is worse than Paro. And Paro is worse than Lavan, not the way the way I see things, right? These are killers, maniacs. Lavan was interested in messing around with his son-in-law who was like this new guy who was here to take away his sheep. And he had a different religion, too. That was not Lavan's point. Lavan was a bum, right? And talk about bums, Paro was the worst bum. And Hitler is the master bum. Okay, I'm not saying this as a theologian. I'm saying this as a person, and I'm sharing my feelings. And I will be willing to bet my hat that there are other people out there. Some of them are officially out there like that. And some of them are out there living in the closet. So I say to those people in the closet, how are you doing? Come out.
0: I think what you just the rant that you just engaged in, I think is is a wonderful evidence to how efficient it is to actually put these things together, because now we've got a dynamic. What you just said at the seder, I can imagine we're having a seder, uh, Kivalevich's and Junies, and this and Junie and and Doctor Juni says, you know what? I have a big question on what we just read about love, right? And and and, and then we're going to start talking about it, and you're going to hear different points of view, and you're going to hear someone say, well, you know, how do you gauge the enormity of evil? Uh, do you how is it that you gauge, uh, especially when the Jewish people are only. Were only seventy or whatever they were thirty people at one time, and and at and in the Mitzrayim they had become evolved to this multi-million uh, population. So how do you gauge uh, threat? And it's I, I think a, a tremendous discussion. Now you might you you might not. I know you. Dr. J, and you're not going to be convinced of the answers. But can you imagine kids listening to this discussion between yourself and others about this question that you raise and the attempts to give an answer? And, and people, that to me is a very healthy dynamic. It might not, it might not satisfy you. You're still going to say, ah, <laughs> it's all an Irish guy. Hitler is the worst. But others are going to be saying, hmm, I wonder. You know, is there is there a trajectory? Is there a trajectory of evil? Is there something that sort of bonds us historically? Look, Rav Huttner and, and Rav Salvechik. I'm not saying that they were correct. In fact, I was actually arguing against them because I felt that the Holocaust is so enormous that it it it, it will basically, as you called it, the elephant in the room. It's Godzilla smashing Bambi. In other words, if Tisha above becomes Holocaust Day, at least. I don't know there's still so much that we have in terms of film in terms of description in terms of evidence it's like tisha it's like the holocaust is is the only thing that really still 70 years later that has those the, the, the relevant power and, and 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 i i guess ugly grotesque images so it, it actually pushes away tisha above if you make However, I'm just still feeling that if you give a uh, a Holocaust survivor a chance, or, you know what, let's talk about people who come to me in the last two weeks, Russians who have escaped uh, Soviet Russia over the last 25, 30 years. And they've told me, as we were talking about it, that they use the night of Pesach to tell their family and friends about what they went through and how they were able. And again, it doesn't have the horror... Of, of of flesh being ripped from people's bones and people being stuffed into gas chambers. But there are people who still are able to talk about what they've been through. I have another student who escaped Iran uh, in the 70s and uh, talked about what it meant to live under a horrific regime. I think of all of these people are able to speak on Pesach, to their families or to the people they're invited to, they are forced, remember, they are forced to put it within the gaula, the redemption. In other words, you know when you get up to speak, like in an AA meeting, you, you everybody who gets up has to follow a certain order. Anyone who talks about their events in Soviet Russia or in Iran, we know that they're going to have to put a positive period, at the end of it, and I got out, and this is the way it happened. And I think that's, isn't that a comforting message to hear, as opposed to, uh, you know, you, you read about the Holocaust, and you can't make sense of it. It's, 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 it's completely beyond seichel in some way. You can't understand how human beings can act this way. And if you try to come up with a rationale of what it's about, you end up wallowing in, in, in a terrible, terrible, a terrible place. Whereas if in the night of the Seder it gets 10, 15 minutes, who whatever it is, you know it's gonna end up with a bow around it. It might be a little bit too neat for your from from where you're coming from, but it, it at least is encouraging that humanity can push forward and, and, and people who have been through hell can actually get out of hell.
1: What do you think? Uh-huh. I think what you're saying is very powerful. I just want to introduce one notion, and that's the uh, number of people at the Seder, the kids and the adults who are thinking, when do we eat? All right. So, okay, let me tell you what I mean to say by this. Let us say you have an AA meeting, which I'm familiar with, etc. And you're supposed to talk about specific events in your life. It gives you a chance to talk about specific events in your life. But there's a rule. The guys running the meeting say you have to relate it to your uh, weakness of resolve, right? Now that to me becomes a bit of an artificial um, limbo that I I have to go under something and to say, okay, I really want to talk about the fact that my wife kicked me out, okay? I want to talk about the fact that my kids are, you know, arrested or are themselves on alcohol and drugs, but I can't. So I'm going to have to Okay, so I'm going to do the service since this is my podium. This is the only chance I have. I'm going to relate it to something. But that's not really my point. So yes, for, again, I'm back to my split. Some people will say, yes, this is terrible, or this is a, a significant experience, and I see some similarities here. But in a sense, it cheapens it. I just want to talk about Iran, and it was a terrible thing. Why do I have to relate it to what happened to Jews 2,000 years ago. I I don't want to do that. I will do that. There are some commonalities, but there is more to that. And in fact, if I just got out of Iran or out of Hungary or Czechoslovakia, it feels much real, much more real and much more profound. So again, we have the the population here, the insightful population could say, yes, it feels very real and very potent, very traumatic, but realize that you come from the people who have had these traumas for a long time and it's part of your I- uh, negative identity, so to speak, and for some it won't be, so again, I- I'm I'm not really personally torn between it, I'm just saying that for some people, the idea of saying, okay, and as part of this, you know what you do, uh, some people at the Seder, as part of it, they have to tell a joke, or tell a story, or tell something <laughs> great that happened to them during uh, Pesach cleaning, and that, for some <laughs> That's the most important thing. So I can say, okay, so as part of our ritual here of Seder, we talk about the Seder, let's also everybody talk about a specific event that's been very important to them in their lives or this year for little kids or in their lives. Let's talk about it. No, you didn't get the bike. Okay, you lost the spelling bee. For some of them, that's important and may seem uh, uh, kind of like a, a downer to mention that at the Seder. But that, to many people will then mean this is a time of soul searching. This is the time when I have a real personal truth that I can uh, uh, talk about. And for many of us, the Holocaust would, would feature very high up there. But again, I have to say that I would love to be at the kind of Seder that you described because it sounds like uh, very, um, very spiritual and very touching the soul. So yeah, that's, it's, a, it's attractive. it's attractive.
0: Well, you know, whenever you, you put artifice into a conversation, whether it's the AA meeting, where we say, make sure that you say what you have to struggle with. And you also tell whoever gets up there, you have four minutes to do it. All right. And and we're going to cut you off in four minutes. Even let's say what we're doing right now, Dr. J, we're having a podcast and we know that we can, we're not going to just schmooze forever. We know that it's going to be me asking a question, you answering, you're going to indicate to me. Whenever you whenever you force and and actually groove a structure onto uh, something, uh, you're right, you definitely cut off many aspects of it, but you also, in a way, allow it to have uh, something that could actually be listened to, right? If me and you would just, for example, we're very good friends. I could call you and we could talk for four hours about all our uh, memories and things that we remember about. And we could go me in le in because I'm going to remind you about something about your brother, Menachem. And you're going to remind me about something that has to do with your your daughter, Shalamus. And we're just going to go and talk and talk. It, it's really just unfettered. And you're right. Somebody who was who's who analyzing both of us would say, hmm, I really see a lot about both of them through this conversation. However, if we say you've got to do it in 40 minutes, an hour tops, and it's got to be a back and forth discussion. So that artificial uh, borders that we put on it actually allows people to hmm, I see what I gained from that. And it gets downloads and people are interested in it. So, so I, 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 I'm actually happy with the fact that whether it's God or the rabbis did impose a certain sense. It's gotta be finished by midnight and you have to somehow integrate it within the stories of, of what mm-hmm. occurred. So, so I think that artifice, although you're correct, in some ways there's gonna be the cynic who's gonna say, come on, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, this this has to don't try to don't try to cheapen my life and connect it uh, to what happened uh, with Paro. I think others, especially the the people who are the listeners, are going to be able to absorb it and are gonna be able to take because uh, it's become encapsulated in a way that it could actually live from year to year. Okay. That was just my point there. I don't know if... uh You're you're making sense.
1: You're making (laughs) sense.
0: (laughs) I, you know what, the compliments from you are always very appreciated because I know you are the farthest person from throwing out phony platitudes. That is definitely something which I know is not, in fact, you do it sometimes and I can tell. I don't need to see your face to know (laughs) when it's coming. It has a certain, a certain power from it. Well, Dr. J, you know, I do uh, just, let's just be personal for a minute. Are you going to have a larger seder this year? Is it going to be uh, the whole family? What's what's going to be like? Well, it's going
1: to be the whole fam, the, the whole immediate family that's in Israel. Thank God, we didn't come to that decision until a little bit less than two weeks ago when we read the latest um, research paper. I mean, the, the real question was the um, variants. At least in, in Israel right now, they're feeling fairly confident that the um, immunizations that we've taken will protect us from the standard um, COVID-19s, there were some serious questions. One of them is it's not resolved yet whether you can uh, infect people with COVID even though you're immunized. That is not resolved, although my reading of the papers, I did read a lot of the papers, is that it does protect other people as well. In other words, Uh, but but, uh, they're not willing to say that yet. But uh, up to about a week and a half ago, they were not willing to say that there's a very high likelihood that the um, standard immunizations will protect you from the variants that are out, especially the two new variants. And as of one and a half weeks ago, I decided that it does. So I went swimming today for the first time in a very long time because I felt I was protected even from the variants that are coming in. So yes, we are going to have a joint set. And it was was pathetic. Last year was terrible. We were here alone. That's terrible. And we have... um, uh, and three kids and a number of grandkids living not far away and we couldn't do it and this year we will get together although of course i know i i miss the kids back in the united states and i would have seen them a couple of times already since this mess began so that's um i, I, I,
0: I just want to say oh this is not a medical show it's more a psychological show or whatever sociological show my doctor i spoke with yesterday at length about it and he he feels that I don't know if it's hubris on the part of some epidemiologists, but he feels the percentages are so small and he really believes that the that the that it's almost a way of, of people, you know, sort of like uh, chest thumping and saying, oh, no, there's still a problem. Really, most l- the logical medical people will tell you the chances are very small and it's probably <laughs> not to the point that that, that, that really, there should be a much greater opening out. That's what my doctor said.
1: Well, well the, the point is that in, in the scientific, and I, I can identify as a researcher, you don't want to say something that you don't know. You can project based on the way the data is going. They really don't know that yet, but just based on, first of all, the, the biology of how the, uh, this particular um, immunization works. I, I'm not talking about AstraZeneca, but the others. And also based on the way the numbers have been going, we can project it. And I was willing to to accept that projection, but you can't say for sure what it is. I mean, medically, you have to, yeah, scientifically, you have to do a real controlled uh, trial, which hasn't, yes, of course. Okay, so let, let's not let's not get but it. I'm very
0: happy for you as far as that goes. And I think Thank that- you. Uh, um, we're, we're, I hope, you, I
1: mean, you'll do the same, obviously. So that's good. Well, we're-
0: I, I think with us, uh, just uh, I know the listeners are probably not that interested, but as you know, there's a big difference between you and me in terms of being in Israel and being in the United States. In, 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 in the United States, we have two siddharam. So we yes, actually have, have, have a- Too much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think in, in, in light of what we've been talking about, probably doing it for two nights is probably too intense for yes. any family.
1: That's that's something I'm sure that if it would have happened nowadays, there's no way they would have said you don't do two saders because that's as painful as two Yum kippers. None <laughs> of that. You can't you can't live with that.
0: Yeah. Okay, yeah, especially but... with
1: the matzo balls that you have to cook up
0: too yes, much. Yes, I, I agree. But just let me ask you one thing: is uh, you know it, I, I know that you have a beautiful apartment, but I don't think it's big enough to hold everybody. You're going you're going to be going to your daughter's with house. Some-
1: But we're going to the kids simply because the kids are more comfortable in their own. Our apartment is not big enough, but we're fortunate to to live in an area where people put everybody we put up each other's company all along. So yeah, yes, we can put everybody in here and it'll look like Pesach looked back in Europe with people sleeping (laughs) cots. Oh, we've done that. That's a lot of fun. Uh, but this year it's two days. It's too much because we have Shabbat coming in. But no, we could do it. But we we are fortunate and lucky to live in the community where everybody puts people up. So yes, if I had all the kids here, I would be able to put them all up at neighbors.
0: No, okay. no. Problem. Last last question. Last personal question, Tata. Who is going to mine You know, breedermina. Who would be your um, who who's going to actually sit at the head of the table and? conduct the proceedings. Not
1: I. (laughs) And I've done that for, I mean, ever since we started going to kids, it's not I. And again, as I said before, this is part of marking your um, progress um, through the sojourn here on on earth that you watch as, well, sometimes proudly and sometimes disappointedly, as you um, are no longer the uh, tone setter which is fine. Well, think of it this way. You start, for most people at least, you start as being part of a family where you definitely are not the tone setter. And then, unfortunately, as those people disappear from your life, you become the tone setter. And then you start um, giving that up as well. So it is a a time for reflection, for watching time passing by and looking for the sands passing through your fingers. And um, unless you step back and take a... um, an abstract, depersonalized perspective, it's sad. You're no. happy for the way your kids are progressing and basically uh, getting to the point where they are starting their own traditions and taking some of yours and getting rid of them just as we did to those that we b- were bequeathed unto us. But yeah, it tells you something about yourself and that if you're not willing to see your life as... Um, not being characterized with you being a central figure, you're in trouble. Uh,
0: well, well, I think as this little conversation or long conversation we've had today indicates that although you might be sitting on the sidelines, whoever's running the Seder better be careful because the shark-
1: Watch out, because he the shark is him. in the
0: water. The shark okay. is in the water, and Doctor Doctor <laughs> is in the, in the
1: faces of all the kids sitting around.
0: <laughs> Doctor J will definitely be out there to needle whoever is running this Juni Seder uh, or our polluxator and, and be able to throw in uh the type of questions that are gonna really demand some real thoughtful answers. That's it, my friends. Have a wonderful Passover and Pesach and our to our Christian friends. I hope we didn't dis- do a disservice to the importance of, of, of the events of, of Easter that are coming for you. Take care, Dr. J. I know we'll be in touch. Bye bye.